This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. The most important person in the culture war over the next uh, 10 years will be, drumroll please, Jerry Seinfeld. Slater Crusaders, America is the greatest country in the world. You heard that right, Jerry Seinfeld. What? Yep, the most important leader that we are going to have in fighting the current trend in our culture is going to be Jerry Seinfeld. Now, there are many other people with many other roles, of course. Uh, You have a role in your family and in your neighborhood. Uh, Of course, the role of our churches across the country. And there's many other influential people who are all going to be very necessary to get our country back on track. But the most essential piece of that puzzle, the most important person, the leader of the effort, if you will, to get us back on path is going to be Jerry Seinfeld. And I think he knows it. Why do I think this? Let me take a half step back. We've been... uh, sharing, I don't know, a couple stories a week of some crazy politically correct nonsense where professors are getting fired for having college students read The Great Gatsby because that triggers something. Or a professor getting disciplined because he taught Pavlov's dog in his psychology class and that triggers Thoughts of animal cruelty. And we've talked about students protesting conservative women from coming on campus uh, and and protesting incredibly talented women from speaking at graduation because of their opinions. They're, They're hurtful. And we've put this under the umbrella of the freedom from speech movement, which says, well, you, you can't say that. That's offensive. That triggers me. That That hurts me. I I feel emotionally raped. That's an actual term. The most absurd example probably is that uh, women's conference, feminist conference in London, where they told everyone, uh, please don't clap because clapping triggers anxiety and instead use your jazz fingers. Okay, This is real life and there's millions of stories like this. And it started off goofy and funny. You know, I just be like, oh, look at that, a couple crazy people. Now it's very serious because when you throw in what's been happening from, and I know this sounds like left field here, but all these different ingredients make what we're eating. Uh, when you throw in Islamic extremism, right? When you throw in uh, Je suis Charlie, Charlie Hebdo and all the rest and, and, and uh, Pamela Geller. Now it gets very serious because people think it's, it's just game on. Right, right, and people think we should ban hate speech, and we've talked about this a million times. If you ban hate speech, okay, but who determines what's hateful? Because if some fragile, immature, pseudo adult who's marinated in, in a politically correct environment for twenty years of government indoctrination, if they decide what's hateful, then we are all going to be silenced. 
and I'm going to say this now, and you may not believe me if you haven't been listening for a long time, but we are all going to be arrested. And I know that sounds crazy, but we've told stories about uh, the guy, uh, the student in uh, London who was arrested and put in jail for 48 days. I think it was two months um, for writing racist things on Twitter. He sent nine tweets that were racist and he got thrown in jail. Or how about the guy, the guy who made the YouTube video that had nothing to do with what happened in Benghazi and he was in jail for a year. Okay, so this is a dangerous road when you start going, well, that's hateful, that's hurtful, this harms me, you can't say it, I'm going to arrest you. Politically correctness started out as cute, right? It was, it was kind of a funny like, oh, you can't call that person short. He's vertically challenged. Ah, we all have a little laugh. But now it can be used uh, by people who want to silence others. So where does Jerry Seinfeld come in? He made a comment earlier in the week. Uh, I think we played it a little later in the show, so you may not have heard it. Um, but he made a comment about politically correctness and how it's taking over our country. And he said comedians have been telling him for a while now not to go to college campuses. Chris Rock doesn't go on college campuses anymore. He said George Carlin, before he passed away, said the same thing. Don't go on college campuses. There's protest against Bill Maher for the love of Pete because he dare say things against Islam. So Jerry Seinfeld said this is just out of control. He said his wife told their 14-year-old daughter that in a few years, she'll want to go to the city, New York City, because there's going to be boys there. And, and she'll want to hang out with, with the boys. And the 14-year-old daughter, Jerry Seinfeld's daughter, says, Mom, that's sexist. And Jerry says, they, they just these kids, they just use these words. They don't even know what they're talking about. I think that was on Monday. So, okay, I got, I got some press. I got some news. Okay. Uh, this wasn't just a passing thought from Jerry Seinfeld. This is becoming his mission. Uh, last night, he was on Late Night with Seth Meyers. And he's made it pretty clear that this is his thing now. Uh, so I want to play a clip here. Uh, again, this is Jerry Seinfeld, Seth Meyers, and uh, the editor of The New Yorker. Here's clip one. Well, I will say comedy, it's interesting. Comedy is, I do think, is, the, you know, supposed to push the line, push towards the lines of the medium. There are more people now who will let you know if they think you went over the line than ever before. Don't I know it. I mean, you have to yeah. feel the same yeah. way about comedy. Yeah, but they keep moving the lines in for no reason. Right. I, I, I do this joke about um, uh, the way people need to have the, justify their cell phone. I need to have it with me because people are so important. All right. You know, I said, well, they don't seem very important the way you scroll through them like a gay French king. You know, it's just... <laughs> well... That's very offensive to the gay French king. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there, there, I did this yeah. line recently in front of an audience. And you can, it comedies where you can kind of feel like an opinion. And they thought, yeah. what do you mean gay? What are you talking about gay? What are you saying gay? What are you, what are you doing? What do you, what do you mean? You know... And I thought, are you kidding me? I mean, we can't even. No. You, I could imagine a time, and, and this is a serious thing, I can imagine a time when people say, well, that's offensive to suggest that a gay person moves their hands in a flourishing motion, <laughs> and you now need to apologize. I mean, th there's a creepy PC thing out there that really bothers me. So Jerry Seinfeld's very serious about this. <laughs> um, 
comedy is an art form, especially with Seinfeld. He has a very analytical mind. Uh, all of his jokes are, are perfectly crafted. Every word he uses, uh, the notes that he uses in his delivery, the intonation, everything's perfectly uh, articulated. And he sees his art form being taken away from him by political correctness because that's a funny joke and he says it to a crowd and no one's sure if they're allowed to laugh or not. And he's saying, whoa, this is funny. You, <laughs> you, you should laugh at this now. So he sees his art form taken away from him. And he also sees a country that can't function properly unless we lighten up and laugh at ourselves and each other and the world around us. And the reason that Jerry Seinfeld's the most important person in our culture war, and I know that sounds dramatic because you're thinking, well, what about Dr. David Jeremiah? Or what about, who, I mean, there's a lot of people you can name. Jerry Seinfeld's the most important because the only way to kill our PC world is to mock it. I think we all agree that PC culture needs to die. And the only way to kill it is to mock it. It needs to be mocked incessantly. People who fall for it need to be laughed at. 22-year-old children who can't handle reading a book because of the way that a male character treats a, a female character, those children need to be ridiculed and derided and scoffed at. Because it's the only way to kill whatever is inside of them that causes them to be so feeble. You can't reason with this. You must mock it. It's the only way to kill it. And everyone is scared. And so, first of all, some people don't have the skill set to do that, to mock properly. Um, so not everyone's in that world. And Jerry Seinfeld's the best at it. Now, a lot of comedians are scared of it. Jerry Seinfeld's not because he has nothing to lose. I want to play one more exchange here. This is, uh, again, uh, Seth Meyers, Jerry Seinfeld, last night on Seth Meyers. Uh, and he's with the editor of The New Yorker. But a lot of his sketches go over the line in a way that you, you know, it's important for him to go too far to see where the, see where the line is, if such a line exists. You know, is, should there be a line? I don't, I don't know. But sometimes there's a misfire. I got a misfire today. I, I won't describe it, but it was, you know. What, what does that mean? You got a misfire today? It was a, it was a sketch. It was a sketch about a possible cover about um, the Vanity Fair cover recently. Oh, okay. There you go. But it, it didn't work. Yeah. If it doesn't no, this, uh, work. Well, I would like thing. to know what it was. You're not going to get it. <laughs> now you, as long as we're on this subject, which yeah. I think is very relevant, yeah. you said the other day, I, I saw a thing, I think it was on Instagram, you're not going to make any jokes about Caitlyn Jenner. I said that day I wasn't, you know, I don't... Oh, that day. No, but like, again, like, I don't want to... Again, now, Caitlyn Jenner is a person who will continue to do things in the public eye, and she will be as open to jokes as everybody else. But as far as that cover in that moment, I sort of thought that was a wonderful moment, and that wasn't a time to make a joke. So. Oh, okay. But I don't want to think I, Caitlyn I Jenner you're... can't go around doing whatever she wants the rest of her life and thinking she's not going to show up in a monologue. Okay, so like my, okay good. Very clear about that. All right, good. Yeah. I feel better now. Yeah, there's no right, card. Right. Nobody gets card blanche on late Even... Um, the head of the New Yorker there, he couldn't even say Caitlyn Jenner. Did you hear how he had to tiptoe over that? He's like, uh, Jerry Sound was like, I want to know what it was about. And he's like, um, uh, it was about, um, let's just say 
It was about the, the recent Vanity cover. Just say Caitlyn Jenner. See, see, we can't. Oh, it's so frustrating. Seinfeld's going to be, and that's why Seinfeld's so good at it, because he's like, who are you talking about? What, what are you, a Explain to me. What you, use your words and explain what you're talking about. And because Seinfeld's so rich and doesn't need to do anything for the rest of his life, he's got nothing to lose. And he's going to mock our PC culture like no one else can. And it's going to empower everyone else, all of us, hopefully, to do the same. And everyone will see how ridiculous all of this is. And we could put a stop to it once and for all. That's why I believe Jerry Seinfeld is going to be the most important person in the culture war in the next coming years. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. The reason we're talking about Jerry Seinfeld right now, because I think Jerry Seinfeld is going to be the most important person in the culture war in the next, well, now uh, to the next 10 years, because Jerry Seinfeld doesn't care. (laughs) He's doing his own thing. Uh, A couple nights ago, he uh, was on, uh, what is it? Late night with Seth Meyers. And it's very clear that this is a man with nothing to lose. Right? He's, got, he's got nothing to lose. He's done many other things in his life. He's very rich. He doesn't need to prove anything to anyone. So he's, he's playing with house money at this point. And he is going to destroy the PC culture in a way that only he can. And it's long overdue. I know you agree with that. Let me, let me give you an example here of, of PC culture gone amok. The self-esteem culture. We've talked a lot before about how the self-esteem culture, the whole everyone gets a trophy, don't keep score, that whole mentality was created by a, a uh, assemblyman in San Jose, a Democrat assemblyman in San Jose in the California state capitol started a task force on self-esteem in California and how to improve it throughout our school system. And that just exploded this whole, uh, don't keep score mentality and everyone's a precious little snowflake and all that. Anyway, so, so th- now here we are. Oh gosh, when was that off the top of my head? I want to say like 1983 or something. So, you know, we're 20, 30 years later and this is what we got. Um, there's a school district in Dublin, Ohio. It's just outside Columbus, the capital where 20% of all the students are what? 20, and so we got a high school, it's a district, a school school district, couple high schools, three high schools. 20% of the students are what? Hmm. Valedictorians. 20%. The valedictorian has always been the top performing student. At least when I was when I graduated high school way back in 2003. 
the valedictorian was a person, the person with the highest grades. And they gave a speech at graduation. I thought it was even crazy to have a salutatorian, which would be the second highest grade. It's like first place loser, right? Who wants to be salutatorian? But I think that person gave a speech to her, did the welcome or something. I don't know. But that's what it was. Valedictorian, highest grades. Salutatorian, second highest grades. I think they got to wear something around their shoulders or whatever. At these high schools, there's 222 valedictorians. Three high schools, 222 valedictorians. One high school has 44, the other has 82, and the third has 96 valedictorians. That is ridiculous. Everyone's a valedictorian. That is crazy. We're really not that far away from having every student be a valedictorian. Why not? Why not? And that's why Chris Rock said, you know, we've all talked about the uh, don't keep score culture, but even Chris Rock says that he doesn't go to college campuses anymore because everyone's so PC. And he said it's the product of the no one keeps score, everyone wins all the time generation. I don't know when kids are going to get it that when everyone is special, no one is. Does that make sense? When everyone's special, no one's special. This is why sports are important. It's been a lot of conversation here in San Diego. We've been talking about it a lot on the local show about the Chargers. Um, will they stay or will they go now? And looks like they're leaving, but it's a lot that goes into that. Uh, but one question we brought up is, will football be a thing in a couple of decades. Will football exist? Right? It's so dangerous. You have high profile athletes saying that they're not going to let their kids play football. Like Troy Aikman and LeBron James saying they won't let their kids play football. You're going to have a lot of high schools with kids getting concussions. They're going to get sued. Schools aren't going to want the liability of having a football team. We're going to lose the feeder programs and football uh, won't exist in a couple of decades. It's a possibility. I don't want to get off topic, but my point is that sports are a meritocracy, the last true meritocracy in America. You don't get any special playing time in the NFL because you're Hispanic. You don't get any special playing time because you're gay. No one cares how you feel about a referee's bad call. You get over it, you overcome it. Sports are the last true meritocracy. A, a team doesn't hire someone because they have to reach some politically correct quota based on ethnicity. And everyone knows it, and everyone knows it's good. Jimmy Kimmel did a uh, man on the street after the uh, NBA Finals game the other day, and they found Jesse Jackson. And the, the producer asked Jesse Jackson what he thinks about the new NFL rule where each team has to have one white player on the court at all times. <laughs> and Jesse Jackson's like, no, that's not true, is it? And of course it's not, but see how ridiculous that sounds? It's because it takes away merit off the team. That's absurd because an NBA team should be free to put their five best players on the court at any given time and a business should be free to hire the top 100 employees at any given time. True meritocracy. We have to get back. But of course, the more and more that we, we raise our kids to be precious little snowflakes and that they're all special and they're all deserving and they're all wonderful and they're all perfect. Merit. Won't even be a concept. Mike Slater Show the Blade Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. Insider Crusaders, America is the greatest country in the world. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful Saturday. Uh, TheBlaze.com slash radio is the website. My website or my Twitter is Slater Radio. You can tweet me anytime so we can hang out more than just the three hours that we are allotted here today. But I'm glad uh, that you're here for this moment now. Um, I want to talk about one of my favorite people, Mike Rowe. I love Mike Rowe. I love his foundation. Love his message. Love his mission. Uh, he's doing great work. And someone wrote him a note. Well, they didn't write him a note. They angrily and thoughtlessly typed something on a computer uh, on Facebook. Uh, this is what he said. He said, your, your constant harping on work ethic is growing tiresome. Just because someone's poor doesn't mean they're lazy. Which I'm positive Mike Rowe has never said. The unemployed want to work. And many of those who can't find work today don't have the benefit of growing up with parents like yours. Up oh, there's the privilege. Oh, that's, I didn't even think of that. Guys, remember a couple weeks ago we talked about um, the, the uh, uh, psychologist who said growing up with parents is an unfair advantage. So as opposed to growing up with parents being, being good and something that we should want and strive for as a culture that we should encourage strong parents and family units. No, no, no. Unfair advantage. So if something's an unfair advantage, we need to, we need to eliminate that unfair advantage. Crazy stuff. And, and here's the same mentality right here. That's why that stuff works. That's why that stuff has legs. Because someone like this can say, well, we don't have the benefit of growing up with parents like yours. So we can't be expected to do all the things that you talk about. Like, I don't know, work hard. Um, how can you expect someone with no role model to qualify for one of your scholarships? That's so ridiculous. There's so many different types of role models. Not just anyway. To qualify for one of your scholarships or sign your silly sweat pledge. Rather than accusing people of not having a work ethic, why not drop the right wing propaganda and help them develop one? Well, that's the point of the sweat pledge. Anyway, Roe had a, a beautiful response. Um, he ha- highlighted the fact that there are millions of jobs that companies are trying to fill. Most don't require four-year degrees. He was at a uh, conference in Michigan last week, and he says he talked with several hiring managers of some of the largest companies in Michigan. And they said the biggest challenge in finding good help is one, people who pass the drug test, And two, lack of soft skills, which is a nice way of saying applicants who tuck in their shirt and pull up their pants and look you in the eye and say please and thank you. Those are the biggest hurdles towards hiring someone. And Mike Rowe says, this is not a Michigan problem. This is a national crisis. We're churning out a generation of poorly educated people with no skill, no ambition, no guidance, and no realistic expectations of what it means to go to work. That's the right-wing propaganda from Mike Rowe. But this is the part I really want to highlight in the remaining three and a half minutes. Uh, He says, every day on the news, liberal pundits and politicians portray the wealthy as greedy, while conservative pundits and politicians portray the poor as lazy. And Democrats have become so good at denouncing greed that Republicans now defend it. 
And Republicans are so good at condemning laziness that Democrats are now denying it even exists. It's a never-ending dance that gets more contorted by the day. That is such a good point from Micro. Such a good point. So I just want to be clear here because we talk about these themes a lot in this show. I don't think the poor are lazy. I don't think the rich are greedy. I think we are all lazy. And I think we are all greedy. Let me be nicer with that. Lest I annoy everyone. (laughs) Really offend everyone. I think all of us have a bit of laziness in us. And I think all of us have a bit of greediness in us. Right? Mike Rose saying, oh, you know, liberals, they paint this broad brush and they call uh, greedy. And conservatives, they paint with a broad brush and call all poor people lazy. Well, I'm going to paint with an even broader brush. We're all lazy and we're all greedy. I don't think, let's take one at a time. I don't think all poor people are lazy. I've certainly never said such a thing. I apologize if I've ever alluded to that. But I think there are government-created systems and programs that appeal to the, hmm, how do I say this nice, that appeal to the lazy parts within all of us. I know there's a, there's a lazy part inside of me. I can have a lazy streak. I, I think laziness is uh, 20% of my personality, right? It's 20%. Um, if something caters to that 20%, I'm quick to grab it. So like the day before a vacation, whew, it's hard to push through that day before, you know, uh, that, that last day before a three day weekend that caters to my lazy side. I'm not great with procrastinating, or I should say I'm really good at procrastinating. Uh, if I have a speech to give in a month, I should prepare a little bit every day leading up to it. But time appeals to that 20% of laziness inside of me. So I'm not saying poor people or people on welfare are lazy. I'm saying we're all lazy, but we need to eliminate programs and systems that cater to the laziness inside of us and bring that out and make it who we are as opposed to just a little tiny part of who we are. I also think greed is bad, just like laziness, but we're all greedy. We all want more. It's a fortunate person who's 100% satisfied with everything he has and doesn't want a penny more. I've never met that person. I graduated college. My first radio job was $22,000. I got along just fine. Now I make more than that, and I feel poorer than when I made $22,000. Money consumes me even more, more of my thought, than when I made twenty two grand. Am I being greedy? Yep. I am. So... I don't think the poor are lazy. I think we're all lazy. We got a little bit of laziness inside of us. I don't think the rich are greedy. I think we all have a little bit of a greedy streak inside of us. But what we need to do in our country is make sure we avoid the creation of systems that make it comfortable. There are those two bad things. It's no different than any, uh, any addictions you have, right? Everyone has a little bit of an addicting thing in their life. Um, whether it's TV or gambling or alcohol or food or video games. Right? I have a little bit of an addictive personality. I, I, when I was a kid, I, I was addicted to video games. And I know that I can be again. And right? I know that if I 
if you bring Guitar Hero over to the Slater household, then that will interfere with my marriage. So, I don't play video games. I cut off my hand. I think everyone's greedy. So we need to eliminate things in our culture that bring out the greed inside of us. I think we're all a little bit lazy, so we need to eliminate the parts of our culture and our economy that bring out the laziness inside of us. That's why capitalism is the best economic system. Because you, in a truly capitalist system, not what we have today, a truly capitalist system, you can't afford to be lazy. You have to go to work. And you can't afford to be greedy. Because someone else will work harder and better and for less. And also capitalism directs your greed into, produ- into producing productive things for other people. It's the only way in a truly capitalist system to make money. And I know I got to run here, but let me just say one last thing. Today we have systems that appeal to people's laziness. And today we have systems that appeal to people's greed. Right? All, in a truly capitalist system, you have to serve other people. In the system we have today, you just got to be buddy-buddy with a politician and you get all the political connections. So, I don't know, something to think about. I'm not going to say that all the rich are greedy and the poor are all lazy. That's ridiculous. We're all lazy. We're all greedy. So let's overcome that and let's help each other be neither. 1-888-900-3393. Help me fine tune that analysis. I know, I know it's a little harsh. <laughs> I, I perhaps wasn't as eloquent as I should have been, but um, help me make sense of it because I've been, I've been thinking a lot about it recently. Um, and I know you can, you can help me fine tune it. one 900 3393 and, and uh, probably easier even on, on, uh, on Twitter, Slater radio on Twitter, Mike Slater show, the blaze radio network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the blaze radio network. Later. I want to I want to prove here that capitalism is the system that brings the best out of us and communism, socialism, all the rest brings the worst out of us. Cuz in the last segment we talked about how we all have a little bit of laziness, we all have a little bit of greediness. And my argument was that capitalism it, it doesn't allow you to be lazy, right? You can't afford to be lazy. And it doesn't do any good to be greedy. Because one, if you are greedy, the best way to satiate your greed is to serve other people so that they can give you money in exchange for the products and services that you give them. Mutually beneficial voluntary trade. So yeah, you can be greedy because you you can only satiate that by helping others. I want to prove that that's true. The study that was just completed two years ago, they took 250 people as a part of this study um, and each person could win up to $8. Here's the deal. They gave each person a, uh, a, a dice or a die and you roll the die 40 times before you roll, you decide in your head. So you don't tell anyone you decide in your head 
if you're going to pick the number that's on the bottom or the number that's on the top of the die. So you roll the die and uh, the number two is facing up. And before the roll, you said, I'm going to pick the number on the top. So you roll the die and a two is facing up. The thing is, the higher the roll, the more money you get at the end. So when you roll, like I'm going to pick the number on the top. You roll the die and there's a two facing there. That means there's a five on the bottom. So you say, ooh, uh, well, I didn't really mean the number on the top. What I really wanted to do was the number on the bottom. Yeah, yeah, the number on the bottom. So you record a five on, on the piece of paper. You rolled a five. And you do that 40 times. Now, if you roll the die 40 times, uh, you're pretty much going to get an equal number of one, two, three, four, fives, and sixes. But people didn't get an equal number of one, two, three, four, fives, and sixes. They had a disproportionate number of four, fives, and sixes. How can that be? Well, because there was an incentive to cheat and write down a higher number. Because again, the higher number, the more money you get. Now, we're only talking $8, right? (laughs) So we're not talking a lot of money. But still, people would cheat enough uh, so that they could get just a little bit more money by saying, oh, no, 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 Uh, I meant meant, uh, the higher number. Yeah, 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 higher number. Now, here's what they found out from the study. They asked everyone who participated. Because, so I mean, so far, nothing. I mean, so far, all we've proven is that people cheat and lie. Okay, so big deal. No newsflash there. Here's the interesting part. The 250 people in the study were all from Berlin. And at the end of the study, Berlin, Germany. And at the end of the study, they they, uh, asked the people there where they've lived in the previous decades, where they grew up, and where their parents lived. And the conclusion was that those who had East Berlin roots cheated twice as much as those who had grown up in West Berlin. What's the difference between those two places? Well, East Berlin was communist control. West Berlin was a capitalist control. So people who grew up under a communist system, people whose parents grew up under the communist East Berlin were more likely to cheat twice as likely and cheated twice as much as those who grew up in a capitalist system. And the scientists concluded that of course there's, you know, prosperity differences between communism and capitalism, right? That's as apparent as North Korea and South Korea and East and West Berlin, but it's more than just prosperity. The economic system that we live under has an effect on our ethics, our morals, and our integrity. Now, this is crazy because most people think that capitalism is what the greedy people like, right? They think that that capitalism is uh, what um, uh, is how you get ahead by cheating. No, it's the exact opposite. And actually, if you grow up and if you live in a communist country, you have a demoralization. That's what the scientists called it, a demoralization of your virtue. And because of that, you are more likely to cheat and lie. Because in a communist system, you need to cheat and lie to get ahead. And over time, people normalize cheating and lying and stealing to get ahead. And in this study, at least it proves that that has a lasting effect on people decades, even after the fall of the Berlin wall. 
This is why we need to argue that capitalism is not just the best economic system, but also the most moral system. Because it's the only system that respects each other person, each other person's right to their life, their liberty, and their property. And you don't cheat and lie and steal to get ahead. Sir. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze, Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. It's Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Uh, let's talk about the, the, the story of the week, what happened in McKinney, Texas. And I don't really want to talk about the pool party. It's once again a story about race and police, because the optics of this story are... Black teenage girl on the ground, white cop on top of her. And that's all that's necessary to make a, uh, I don't want to say to make a narrative. That's all that's necessary to take this event to fit the narrative that already exists. Now, I wasn't in, uh, I wasn't there. <laughs> no one who's reporting on this was there. We don't know the full extent to all this. I do know. That everyone who's showing this video of the cop is not showing video of anything that happened at the pool before that or any of the fights that were going on around the pool. Right? They're not showing any of the things that caused this cop to be called in the first place. Which is very, the, the, the reason that this cop was there is very different than the narrative of white residents called the cops because there were a lot of black folk hanging around. That's not true at all. That's not why the police were called. One resident of the town who was there on Facebook, he said this was a Twitter party that turned into a mob event, jumping the pool, fencing, assaulting security guards, attacking a mother with three girls. The video doesn't show everything. One man who's black said, look, I live in this community and this entire incident is not racial at all. A few thugs spoiled a community event by fighting, jumping over fences into a private pool, harassing, and damaging property. Not everything is about race. We have other issues that need our attention, other fights uh, of made-up, make-believe causes. (laughs) We have other issues that need our attention other than fights of made-up, make-believe causes. I've read some people say there's a lot of drinking and marijuana and then fights started breaking out. We don't really know what was happening, but I, I, I'm getting sick of people jumping to conclusions based on a video that starts in the middle of the story, clearly starts in the middle of the story. And it's not fair to pass judgment when you only see the middle and the end of the story. Another pet peeve, if I may. When I read sentences and I hear people on the TV say, that a police officer pulled a gun on an unarmed teen. The unarmed part. Right? Police officer pulls gun on unarmed teen. When you're a police officer and you're in the heat of the moment like that, 
And maybe this officer contributed to escalating that heat. Right? I'm sure he would. I don't know. I'm not sure. I, uh, perhaps he would take back some of that escalating if, if he could. Maybe. But the fact is, at that moment, it was hot. And when he pulls that girl to the ground and the two guys come running up to the officer. And one of them reaches behind his back, which is what you would do if there was a gun there. From the officer's perspective, you can't wait and see if that guy does in fact have a gun. You can't wait. We're talking split seconds. So he reaches for his and he doesn't point it at anyone. And then those two guys run away. If you're a cop, you can't wait because then you die. And this is why I don't understand what people can't see. If you hesitate as a police officer, you die. If he waited to see if that guy, what that guy had in his back pocket was actually a gun. I mean, what do you want him to do? Be like, oh, look, uh, is he reaching for a gun? Yes, indeed. He is reaching for a gun. Oh, he's pointing it at me. Uh, does the safety on or off? Oh, the safety's off. Okay. Um, geez, I better get my gun out. No, he's already dead. So during the break, I was just watching a video of, of that kid, uh, Adrian Martin. He's 18 years old. I guess he's not a kid anymore. Um, he is the one who, uh, when the, when the officer, uh, pulled the girl to the ground, he and and a friend of his two guys sort of ran around, uh, uh, the, the, the side of the officer and the kid's right. I didn't notice this at first, but the kid's right. There's a slope, a little bit of a slope in the grass. And this kid, this kid's name is Adrian. Adrian's friend bumps him a little bit as they're coming down the slope. So that causes Adrian to slip. So he sort of has to, he has to catch himself a little bit. And that's why it looks like he's in a, in a shooting posture. And then he says to, and I just watched the video. He says, I felt like I was going to fall into the officer. So I got my balance and I started to back up. And when he backed up, his hand went behind him as if to reach for a gun. So clearly this kid didn't have a gun, but that the cop isn't supposed to, how's the cop supposed to know that? Right? The kid's running to the side. He, he gets pushed a little bit. He slips, catches himself, starts to run back, puts his hand behind him. Uh, which is what exactly you would do if you were in fact <laughs> trying to charge a cop, cop and pull a gun on him. So Adrian wasn't trying to do that, but that's exactly what it looked like. And that's exactly how a police officer should respond in that situation. I'm not talking about what happened before that. I'm talking about what happened with the pulling of the gun on the unarmed teen. He didn't know that. It's an ugly scene. No one wants situations like this, clearly. But the left's attempt to twist this into a race war, it's, well, it's predictable. It's predictable, but it's unfair to the truth. Also, there's no videos of this, but someone from the town has said that those same kids, if not those kids, different kids, have come back to this community and are kicking indoors and vandalizing cars and stealing things and terrorizing the neighborhood because of what happened. Now that's one, what one person said, but then I was listening to an interview with a local pastor at a church. Good man. I want to talk about him later in the show. And he says that they're going to be patrolling the neighborhood, protecting people from 
those who just want to commit more vandalism. But no videos of that. And it's all going to be blamed on white privilege. This whole thing. Vandalizing other people's property. Now celebrated behavior. Because those vandals are going to be portrayed as, as victims. And I'm not saying they're all vandals. You get some people caught up in it, of course. But they're going to be only victims. And there's going to be another story next week. And another story just like this the next week. So much brokenness. So many things that could have been solved a long, long time ago. By solved, I mean prevented from happening in the first place. 1-800-760-KFMB. Is there anything else that you've seen in the video or that you're hearing in the coverage that you think is unfair? Or maybe what I'm saying is unfair. I want to come back with, uh, we'll take your call, and also with the most comical explanation of all this. Do you remember a few weeks ago, our president was giving a, uh, he was on a panel discussion at Georgetown University about poverty. And he said one of the strangest sentences I've heard of his last 60 years of his presidency. He said, we are withdrawing from the commons. Do you remember, do you remember we played that clip a few times? We're with, the president said, we're withdrawing from the commons. And I said, that's weird. What does that sentence mean? Withdrawing from the commons. I've never heard anything described as the commons. Well, that's what this is being blamed on. We'll explain next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, one 933 Slater Radio on the Twitch. Washington Post headline, How the rise of gated spaces like swimming pools can quietly perpetuate racial tension. Uh, I'll just cut to the short of the story. Uh, if you have a swimming pool, you're racist. How dare you? Uh, the argument here is that swimming pools have been sites of racial exclusion in our history, uh, which is true. But, I mean, lots of things have been sites of racial exclusion. I'm sorry, can we do a quick time? Am I the only one right now who's thinking about um, the Sandlot, right? The scene from the Sandlot. I don't know why I had this weird flashback to that scene from the Sandlot where the kid pretends he's drowning so that he can kiss the lifeguard and then get kicked out of the pool and then she winks. That's one of the best scenes in old-timey movie history. Movies from like 20 years ago. Anyway, um, so the point is there's been lots of sites of exclusion uh, in our history, not just pools. But this uh, activist slash journalist in the Washington Post uh, says in the 50s in particular, uh, and, and they highlight Marshall, Texas in 1957, a black man with the NAACP behind him sued a city, uh, Marshall, to integrate uh, the, the, their public swimming pool. And the judge made it clear that the city was going to lose, and, and the judge was going to be like, hey, listen, you got to let black people in. So the city sold the pool to the local Lions Club 
which could then continue to operate the pool as a whites-only facility. And the argument is that the same thing is happening today. As public pools are closing down, there is a rise of private swimming pools. First in gated communities with HOAs and all the rest out in the burbs, planned communities, and then the, the pools that are really fenced in, uh, in, in backyards of your house, right? So the, those, those are the ones that are really exclusive slash racist. And I don't even know why they, sh I mean, I guess this is kind of an interesting fact, but I don't know how this proves racism or whatever it is they're trying to prove. But over the last 50 years, the number of private in-ground swimming pools has increased from 2,500 to more than 4 million. That's, that's pretty interesting. So 1960, there were 2,500 private swimming pools. That's it. But anyway, to bring it back to, uh, to McKinney, they're trying to make this a racist thing. <laughs> Even though there's black people who live in the community and there's black people who've come out and been like, no, 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 no. I was there. It was a mob. It was crazy. It was totally out of control. It was not because anyone was black. I'm black. I go to the pool. It was like, <laughs> there's just nothing racist about it, but they're trying their best to make it as racist as possible. Um, so that's why they had to go back to the 1950s and be like, see, it's the same way today as it was then. By the way, there's two beautiful public pools in McKinney, Texas. But whatever. Why do I bring this up? Let's take a half step back. The president, our president, Obama, was uh, on a panel at Georgetown University a couple weeks back talking about poverty. And we, we, we talked about this when he said it for no other reason than it was weird that like, I've never heard this sentence before. I've never heard these words put in this order before. I didn't know what to do with it. Uh, at the time, uh, I, I just, I, I, it just put some alarms went out, right? I heard it. I said, well, that's, I don't know what that means. That, that will come up in conversation at one point. And sure enough, here we are a couple weeks later. Um, so he's talking about poverty, and this is what he said. He said, da, 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 da. we don't dispute that the free market is the greatest producer of wealth in history. It's lifted billions of people out of poverty. We believe in property rights, rule of law, so forth. But you gotta, I love the use of the word but from, uh, from people on the left. I love it. I love it. It comes up all the time. Now, when I hear it talk about alarms going off, whenever I hear them use the word, but it's, it just deletes everything that they said before it. And we heard it a lot with the whole, well, I believe in freedom of speech, but not always. <laughs> so whenever you hear the word, but, uh, just forget the first part of their sentence. Only what they say next is what matters. So here's president Obama saying, I believe in capitalism, but there has always been trends in the market in which concentrations of wealth can lead to some being left behind. And that's what's happened in our economy, is those who are doing better and better, those who are more skilled, more educated, luckier, having greater advantages. By the way, quick timeout, he had to throw luckier in there because he, he lost his talking points, right? He's talking about those who are more skilled, more educated. That implies that they put their own initiative into creating their life. And that's not what the progressive ideology says. It says those who are successful are lucky. So that's why...
are more skilled and more educated, uh, I mean lucky, are withdrawing from the commons. And that's the part when I said, I said, whoa, 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 what's the commons? What is that? What are the commons? I've never heard that in my whole life. The commons. Kids start going to private schools like his kids and like he did. Kids start working out at private clubs instead of public parks. And uh, an anti-government ideology then disinvests from those common goods and those things that draw us together. And that, in part, contributes to the fact that there's less opportunity for our kids, all of our kids. There's been a lot of withdrawing from the commons talk lately. I've never heard it before, and now we're seeing it a couple times. Right Here's the president saying, well, a lot of withdrawing from the commons, a lot of people uh, going to private clubs instead of public parks. And then this whole thing in McKinney, people writing articles about, well, there's no more public swimming pools. So, you know, what do you, what do you want them to do? <laughs> it's like, whoa, where's this coming from? And it's only going to get worse. I read this story a couple weeks ago from Catherine Kirsten. Minneapolis is the first city to devise a 30-year master plan. And the master plan, well, other cities have 30-year master plans. This is the first city to have a 30-year master plan that mixes income levels across the city. So it mixes people together who have different incomes in a very profound way. So the urban planners uh, at, the, at the city in, in Minneapolis have decided that there are far too many people living in single-family homes and far too many people living with neighbors that have similar incomes. So there's an effort called Cities Without Suburbs that are, quote, racially, this is their words, racially and economically integrated and environmentally sustainable regions. So the urban planners, uh, they looked at the city of Minneapolis and they uh, found the areas that are that they call racially concentrated areas of poverty. And then they circled the areas that are high opportunity clusters. And their goal is to mix everyone up. So we're going to take the, the racially concentrated areas of poverty and we're going to mix it up with the high opportunity clusters. So this social and social engineering plan is to make it so people can't separate themselves from the commons, right? No more private swimming pools. You racist. Now you're forced to have a public pool with those black people over there and you'll like it. That's what, that's what this is. Spreading the wealth isn't enough. We need to redistributing the wealth isn't enough. We need to redistribute people throughout the city together. It's, and you know, it's, it's funny how when white people move to a black and poor area, it's called gentrification and everyone freaks out and it's horrible. But if we take poor black people and move them into the, the, the uh, rich white areas, that's social justice. I don't, I don't, I don't know the difference. Point is, you can't not be racist from this point forward. I just moved to the burbs where uh, we have a, a pool down the street. I need a key card to open it. It's like 
I'm in the KKK. Basically. 1-888-900-3393. There's your social justice story of the day. Coming to a city near you. I'm excited to spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Last week, I think it was a little later in the show. I think it was in the next hour. Uh, but we talked about discipline in our schools, the lack of discipline in our schools, and you see it outside of schools. <laughs> That's all the same. Uh, but we wonder why. Why is there no more discipline in our schools? This is a part of a very specific and, and purposeful part of the progressive ideology. Now I want to prove that this is official. This isn't just like, Oh gosh, what's going on here? No, this is very purposeful what's happening here and I'll prove it. Uh, but here's Arnie Duncan. He's uh, he of course is the head of the department of education in Washington, DC. He said last year at Howard university, he said, quote, young people are now taking control of the environment. It's sort of a counterintuitive thing for many of us adults, but the more we give up power, the more we empower others and often the better things are empowering teenagers to be a part of the solution, having them control the classroom environment, control the control, the culture, be the leaders, listening to them, respecting them. When we do that, wonderful things happen for kids in communities that didn't happen historically. Okay. I, I, I get it, right? I, I see what he's, I see where they're like the direction they want to go, but they always go to this crazy Lord of the flies extremism. In this case, we still need adults in the classroom. Yes. It's important to listen to the kids and see where they're coming from, blah, 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 all that stuff. But we need adults to lead the classroom. And we need adults to lead the home. And we need adults to lead the country by setting the culture. We need adults to do this. There's a workshop at the Pacific Educational Group. And they do this workshop in schools all across the country, including right here in San Diego. And the title of the workshop is Decentering Whiteness in School Discipline. Decentering Whiteness in School Discipline. Let me back it up one second. We, we talked earlier a lot about the uh, situation in uh, McKinney, Texas, the pool party, the infamous pool party. Apparently what happened is a girl, her name's Tatiana. She's 20 years old. She likens herself to be a uh, party promoter. And she organized a pool party for the last month called Dime Peace Cookout. And the invite was a picture of a pool. Now, the thing it was, it, it, there was no pool, right? It was just a cookout. It was on the lawn next to the pool. So when people showed up to the lawn expecting a pool party, 
they climbed the fence and then hopped in the pool that they weren't allowed to be in because they don't live there. Chaos ensued. That was the beginning of this whole thing that everyone's talking about. So the people who showed up to this party clearly are not respecting the rules of that community and they don't mind about lying about it. This was not an innocent children's pool party. <laughs> That's the whole thing. That's my favorite part about this is it's pitch like, oh, it's just kids wanting to have fun. No. Just, just for all the old fogies out there, dime piece means 10 out of 10. That's a dime. Like you're a 10 out of a 10. Like, like you're looking good. No, 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 no. You can't even turn it up to 11. You're a dime. And then piece refers to one's derriere. And the name of the uh, concert or uh, party promoter, right? Her company or whatever is called, I can't even know if we should say, make it clap. Which would refer to uh, your buttocks while twerking on the dance floor. Lovely. By the way, the mother, Tatiana's mother, helped organize this event. So, just, just throwing it out there. Uh, Matt Walsh, friend of the show, uh, he got this email the other day. He said, "Matt, you are a racist. How dare you take the side of the cop who violently assaulted innocent children?" who just wanted to come and share some special moments with their friends. How would you like it if your kids were beat up by police just for wanting to have fun? Listen, this wasn't... The kids weren't arrested for having fun. This wasn't Footloose, right? Like, no one called the cops and was like, oh, is this 911? Yes. Uh, I see kids. They're, they're laughing a lot. They're having way too much fun. I, I, I think I even see one kid making a special memory. This has got to stop. That, that, that's not why the police were called. We highlighted community members, black and white, earlier in the show, said the whole thing was unlawful, it was violent, and it was fueled by drugs and alcohol. Not because there were black people there. Come on. So that's the context of this whole situation, which spiraled out of control from there. And I'm not saying anyone's innocent in this whole situation. It's all ugly. But my point is, and the way it connects, is because where are the parents teaching respect to the kids who are there. And again, plenty of blame to go around, right? But where's the respect here? Where's the respect for authority? Where's the respect for other people's property? Where's the respect for the rules? Where's the respect for other people in general, other people who were also at that pool? Now, I'm not saying I was perfect when I was 17 years old. And I don't really expect anyone to be perfect when they're 17. But in the videos that I've been listening to, there's a lot of, it wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything. Why me? Right? There's a lot of that. Also here, uh, there's one video with a girl, and she's screaming, freedom of speech, freedom of speech, freedom of speech, which she has no understanding of what that really means. Freedom of, freedom of speech is not like a, a card that you could just drop uh, in order to say whatever you want, <laughs> whatever you wanted all the time. Anyway. I wasn't there. I'm sure everyone there. Well, I'm not sure. Certain people there would like to take some things back if they could. But there's a general lack of respect from the kids who were there too. And really, I can't even blame them. Because they're told in school that they're in control of their environment. And that they need to control the culture. And that they're in charge. And if you put them in control, everything's going to be great. What do we expect when administrators and teachers have to step back lest they be accused of being racist? 
And we have parents who are stepping back as well and not even being involved in the disciplining of their own kids anymore. So what do we need more of? I want to wrap up with this. We need more of this man. This is Pastor Derek Golden, who lives in McKinney, Texas. Yeah, if I had to say my biggest concern, it was the behavior of the officers. And also, I'm concerned about the responses of our children so that we can keep everybody safe and everybody at peace. Uh, I think one of our undertones is not necessarily racism, but classism. Yeah, I think that the children's response did not predicate the police officer's action. Uh, I want to make sure that that is clear. What they did did not require for him to respond in that manner. However, with some sensitivity, we can train not just them, but also our children how to interact and respond with authority. That's fair, isn't it? Have you seen a general lack of discipline in your interactions lately? Over the years, have you seen a change? If we don't do anything about it, it's going to continue to spiral, and this is going to get a lot worse. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. At Slater Crusaders, 1-888-900-3393. Slater Radio on the Tweet Machine as well. This is great. A man in China is suing an actress because her intense stare through the television caused him spiritual damage. <laughs> That's fantastic. Apparently they loosened the laws in China so they can, you can sue a lot easier. So they're just... They're just it's on. It's game on in China right now. So this, is, this woman sued because her stare is too intense. Um, all right, I want to wrap up McKinney here. Uh, all broken situations, we always look for the helpers. And there was a press conference yesterday from the grievance leaders in the community. And they threw out all the excuses that you could imagine for why this happened. Pool party gone wrong. So you got all the grievance leaders, and then you have Pastor Derek Golden. And we played a bit of his clip in just the last segment. Um, He said he's concerned about the police officer's behavior, certainly, who has since resigned, but also about the children's behavior. He's concerned about the children's behavior, their lack of discipline, their lack of respect, not only at the pool party itself, which necessitated calling the police officers in the first place, but also their lack of respect and discipline for when the police officer arrived. This man... Uh, is a helper may not agree with everything he says, but he's focused on the truth and we can work with that. I want to play this one last clip here of uh, pastor golden. Well, I'll, the brothers of our church, we call them uh, impact men, passionate about changing things. They're going to be on patrol in the neighborhood where there have been death threats and they're going to be uh, threats about burning down houses. So we're already preparing to patrol the area with our brothers. I'm banding with my friends that are here and we're going to, as a whole unit, uh, come together and say, this is our city, not on our watch and not while we're praying. Pastor, it already seems like you have made a declaration that you don't want a Ferguson or Baltimore here in McKinney. We're not having that. 
we're not having that. People that are from the outside coming in don't know our community, so they can only act like they acted in other places. But since we are a different community, I moved here for the reason I moved here. And if they look at the history of our police department, yeah, this one may have some issue. But if you look at the whole thing, it's not really about the actions of one and more about the systemic institutionalization of a behavior that people are dealing with. Until you deal with that, we'll have this all over the country. But we keep trying to say, we want justice, we want peace, he didn't do this. If we focus on one officer, who's going to focus on the rest of them? So he's saying that there's a problem with their police department in McKinney. I don't know. He could be right. I have no idea. But if there is a problem with the department, he is going about the change the right way. Not bringing in the reverend. Not bringing in the justice department. They're going to take care of it in McKinney. The Texas way. He's not going to meet corruption with more corruption. He's not going to out corruption the corruption. He's not going to replace tyranny with another form of tyranny. He's not going to promote justice through lawlessness. It's never going to work. And that's how it's, that's what was attempted in Baltimore and Ferguson. Promoting justice through lawlessness. It'll never work. But he's doing it the right way. Mm, Let me say one last thing. Do you see the declining amount of discipline of kids? Do you you see it? And and I understand that every time someone brings their kids out of the house, they're not going to be... They, they're not going to be model perfect children. I get that. There's plenty of grace abound. But I also see sometimes that it's just a free-for-all. And kids are going to grow up and become adults with no self-control and no respect for authority figures. They're going to be selfish and negative and unhappy. And it's going to be ugly for our country. Because those people are easily manipulated. And I feel like somewhere along the way, discipline became a bad word. It's just another example of our culture where we always go to these extremes, right? Where, where we'll take something that's at one extreme and we'll say that's bad. So therefore, the good thing is the total opposite of that. <laughs> You're like, well, hold on. That's, that's, it's probably somewhere in the middle. Can we sort of land in the middle somewhere and work this out? I'm going to use this example, and every time I do, I get in big trouble for it. But please take this in the spirit that it's intended. Um, but the goofy example that I give, but I just see it all the time, is breastfeeding in public. So maybe in the past, women felt like they had to be super private about it. And people were like, no, that's wrong. And now it's just, it's game on. It's everywhere. All right, women breastfeeding in restaurants and grocery stores on magazine covers. It's on Facebook all the time. I don't go a day without someone seeing someone breastfeed, which like, all right, fine, whatever. But we go from one extreme to another and probably neither is right. Can, can, we, just, can, we, just, can we just be thoughtful? Can we just be thoughtful of other people with everything that we do? Oh, I can just feel the onslaught of emails coming. Anyway, point is, same thing with discipline, where maybe the World War II generation probably disciplined their kids too much. Now we're just way over here, where we think that kids know what's best. Literally, Arnie Duncan, we shared the clip earlier, Arnie Duncan uh, from uh, Department of Education saying, oh, it's... What the kids are going to be in charge now in our schools. They're going to set the culture. They're going to control the environment. No, that's not going to go well. I'll end on this. Um, I saw a very disturbing video yesterday. Two women fighting in a Walmart. 
which I mean, I don't know, pretty funny at first. And it was really funny because one lady is in a scooter, right? She's in one of the motorized scooter things. And then when she, like, just before she gets in that woman's face, she gets right up on her feet and runs towards the woman. So, like, I'm healed! Like, like magically. <laughs> she was so disabled 30 seconds ago, and now she's, like, very light on her feet. Anyway, she uh, she's fighting this other lady, and they're both punching each other on, on the ground. And one of the woman's uh, little boy, um, you know, seven years old, swearing up a storm, yelling at the woman, kicking the woman in the head, punching her. They're in the shampoo aisle, so the kid takes shampoo bottles and starts chucking them at her and dumps the shampoo on her head, all while the mom is instructing the seven-year-old what to do. And you just watch this video, and at first it's it, it funny, and then you're like, oh, this is, this is so broken. This is, this is sad. This whole situation is very, very sad. And, and this is becoming a majority of our country, and it's dangerous. Let's protect our homes. Let's protect our communities. Let's protect our, our church. Let's protect our schools. And it goes from there. It starts in the home. Mike Slater Show, The Blades Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America is the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. one 888 That's the number, but you already know it. Slater Radio is my, uh, my Twitter handle. Send me a tweet whenever you like. I want to talk about Pastor Corey Brooks. He is a pastor at a church on the most dangerous stretch of Martin Luther King Drive in Chicago. I want to tell you what Pastor Brooks said the other day. This is extremely important for our country and for each of us as individuals. He said African Americans have been loyal to the Democratic Party. But there's a group of African-Americans that feel like the Democratic Party has not been loyal to us. We have a large, disproportionate number of people who are impoverished. We have a disproportionate number of people who are incarcerated. We have a disproportionate number of people who are unemployed. The education system has totally failed us. And all of this, primarily has been under democratic regimes in our neighborhoods. So the question for me becomes, how can our neighborhoods be doing so awful and so bad when we are so loyal to this party who's in power? It's a good question, Pastor. He said it's a matter of them taking complete advantage of our vote. They have a failing plan he said of democrats they have a failing plan a business owner wouldn't allow the person who runs it to remain in charge for 50 years while completely running it into the ground this is a pastor on the most dangerous section of martin luther king jr drive in chicago this pastor said that when he got to chicago 
he kept his political opinions to himself. He didn't want to rock the boat. Now, I don't know if that means he was a conservative coming in. But either way, he just didn't want to ruffle any feathers. Which is how many pastors feel. They don't want to wade into politics. They don't want to lose their tax-exempt status. They don't want to say something offensive so that they they lose their members. And their tithes go down or whatever. And by the way, on the tax-exempt status, we've talked before about how the IRS has admitted that they are going to monitor the political activity of churches more closely. Right? So watch out, pastors. Don't, don't even think about entering in the political fray any more than we'll allow you to. So churches, are just, they just stay away from controversial issues like welfare. Right, don't want to know. Don't want to put anyone there. Don't want to talk about charity. Don't want to talk about welfare. Don't. And some churches don't even want to talk about things like abortion. And if you can't talk about that in church, we're never going to make any positive headway. So anyway, the, the same thing with this pastor. That's how he felt when he got into Chicago. And he said, "If you grew up black on the south side of Chicago, he says you're a Democrat." Period. So he got there. He never said anything. But now he sees the Democratic Party taking the black vote for granted. And he said, quote, we don't want anyone from any party taking us for granted. I could go on with the good pastor, but I think you get the point. Um, We get at least his side of the story. My point is, this is our chance. This is our chance. Like never before. Now, this pastor is inviting national political candidates to the church. And Rand Paul has taken him up on his offer uh, because Rand Paul's comfortable doing that. He's, he's done that a few times, gone into p- places where he would normally be persona non grata. He spoke at Berkeley a couple of years ago or a year. I hope, and I don't know if this story, if this church is on Glenn's radar, uh, but I know Glenn is going to be speaking at churches. I hope he speaks to this church. I hope he speaks to Pastor Corey Brooks's church. Because we know there's no greater messenger of the true conservative message than Glenn. But that's what's going on over there. Right? That's what's going on at this one big church. That's what's going on with these big national candidates. That's what's going on with Glenn Beck. I want to know what's going on with us. What are we going to do? We've been saying for a long time, years, ever since I got into radio, to be honest, which was pretty much the beginning of the Tea Party deal. I said we have to prepare, keep our powder dry to get ready. Because there's going to be a day when people are going to wake up and say, what's going on here? (laughs) What's happening? That day is almost here. There's a day that's going to come when people like Pastor Brooks, but a lot of people like him are going to wake up, are going to, are going to stand up and say, whatever's been going on, right? whoever's in charge right now, this isn't working, but there's no way out. And we need to be there and say, uh, excuse me, how about right over here, right? People are going to say, this isn't working. Uh, what else you got? 
And we need to be ready with the answer right like that. Just Johnny on the spot. Now, of course, in this whole meantime, we've been acting and doing the best we can. But all of that also has been preparation for these big moments that are going to come our way. And they are going to be big, obvious moments where major groups of people are going to say, all right, conservatives, I've brushed you off for a long time. I've called you names for decades. I've dismissed you as hate mongers and racists and every other horrible thing in the book. But I've realized that this, what we got going on right now, it's not working and there's no other way. I don't see another way. So I'm going to give you another chance. What do you got? What do you say about this issue? How will your position on this help me? We have to be ready right there at that moment with the right answer. I'll give you an example. This is an easy one. This is the one I'm most passionate about. Someone from this church, Pastor Brooks's church, south side of Chicago. They're going to come forward and say, all right, Charlie. I've thought for many decades that we need to raise taxes on the rich to fund education. But I see that we're spending twelve, thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars $14,000 or more a year on our kids' education, and it's getting worse. But I don't know what else to do. So what's your plan, conservative? The time is gone where we can say, I don't know. Let me get back to you. We need to be ready. We need to be right there, Johnny, on the spot and say, well, I think uh, we should have school choice. Let me tell you how it works. We would lower all of our taxes that currently go to education. So we'd lower taxes by about 40% or whatever it would end up being. I know in California, 40% of our general fund is spent on K-12 through education. So we'd lower all of those taxes accordingly so you get to keep your hard-earned money. What do you think about that? They're going to say, oh, that's wonderful. And then we say, well, any money that you spend on your kid's education, it's now tax-free. Absolutely tax-free. And we're going to throw in a voucher in there for good measure. So now you decide where your kids go to school. That school that you're forced to go to, where 10% of kids can read, where 50% of kids even graduate, and those who do still can't go get a job after they do, let alone go to college. You don't have to go there anymore just because you happen to live where you live. You can go wherever you want now. And we're going to open up education so people can start schools easily. There could be educational entrepreneurs. And I would say, hey, what's your favorite restaurant? And they'd be like, ah, I love gyms down the street. And I'd be like, ah, I love, I love uh, Applebee's. And they'd be like, ah, oh, nope, Chili's is better. And i say, no, you know what? You know what's better? Red Lobster or whatever. And we can have a conversation about that with restaurants, but I want to have a conversation about that with schools where there's many different educational options, just like there's many different places to eat. I want even more options on where to educate your kids than, than where they can eat. And now because you have your own money and you can control your money and you have a little voucher there for good measure, you can decide what school you want your kids to go to. And those schools, because they're competing for you, they're going to be serving you. When's the last time you went to a school board meeting? You know how horribly you were treated? That's never going to happen at this new school that you're paying for. That's never going to happen because they want your money. They want to serve you and your kids. And they're going to give your kids the best education that they can get a specialized, individualized education because they want to keep you, the paying customer, happy. And I know you want your kid, you want your son, you want your daughter. 
to get the best education so they can go on and graduate college and they can get a high paying job and be successful and comfortable and prosperous in their life. So that's our plan. Or, you know, we can uh, tax the rich and just keep doing more of this if you want. We got to be ready for each and every issue because, like I said, the day is going to come when a lot of people are going to be disillusioned and lost. We can help them. We got to be ready for that. The moment's going to come. And if we miss it, I don't think there's any going back. That's why I'm so grateful that we can be here together. I'm so grateful that you listen to the blaze radio. Cause I know everyone else on this uh, station here feels the same way. And it's all about preparing. So let's keep it up. Slater radio on the tweet machine. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater show the blaze radio network. You're listening to Mike Slater on the blaze radio network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Sorry, because that is earlier. We uh, and, and last week at this very time we talked about um, the Pacific Educational Group and, and talked about school discipline. I'll give you the real quick, uh, just in case you missed last week. Pacific Educational Group. It's a group out of San Francisco. They have worked in schools all across the country. Infiltrated is a better word. Uh, they have two pronged, uh, two, two major principles, two major purposes. Um, first is to teach schools about white privilege, um, that, uh, you need to be aware teachers of your white privilege and, and don't teach white traits anymore. White traits like showing up on time, uh, planning for the future, white traits like, um, hard work is the key to success. By, by the way, we didn't mention this earlier, but, uh, university of California, um, it is now officially a microaggression to say that America is the land of opportunity. You're not allowed to say on a, on a university of California campus, there's 10 of them, I believe not allowed to say that America is the land of opportunity. That's offensive. It's a microaggression. So we got that going for us. Anywho, where was I going with this? Ah, yes. Specific educational group. So you can't talk about those things in our public schools. The second thing that they uh, focus on is discipline. They found that um, uh, a disproportionate number of minority kids were being disciplined. So they uh, decided to put a stop to that. Put a stop to it by stopping all discipline. So I want to read this email here from uh, David. He says, Slater, love the show. I was thinking about the Pacific Educational Group and their preferred approach to dealing with problem students. And I was wondering how they handle themselves when they're trying to recruit a school district to utilize their services. Do they show up an hour late for their initial appointment or do they show up on time? Do they speak some form of ghetto rap when they're pitching their services or do they enunciate everything clearly and make salient points? Do they loudly and rudely interrupt the school district officials and go off on irrelevant tangents 
Or do they listen to the questions and concerns of their potential clients and strive to address those issues? Do they ignore their potential clients' requests for additional information or do they follow up with, uh, or, or are they, uh, uh, excuse me, or do, 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 or do they fail to follow up in a professional manner? I would wager that they do the latter rather than the former in each instance. So why are they encouraging school districts to enable behaviors that they wouldn't dream of exhibiting themselves when trying to secure new business? That is so brilliant, David. Right? So I, I just wish I could be a teacher in a meeting with the Pacific Educational Group and I'd listen to their nonsense for 45 minutes and at the end I'd say, excuse me, sir, uh, what time does this meeting start? And they'd say, well, it started at 9 a.m. And what time did you get here? I got here at 8.30. We needed to prepare so that we could be on time. Mm. Mm. On time. So why are you telling me as a teacher to tell our kids that it's not important to be on time? It's not part of your culture to be on time. Don't worry about it if you show up late. If it's, so, if it's okay for our kids to show up late, for, if you want us to teach our kids to show up late, why did you show up on time? Also, I've been listening uh, politely for 45 minutes, and, and I didn't hear one swear word come out of your mouth for the entire 45 minutes. Oh, no, sir. We would never swear at a, at a meeting. Okay, so then why are you telling me it's okay to let my kids in the classroom swear to each other and swear to me? And I also noticed that our superintendent asked you a question earlier, and you called him sir, and you answered his question articulately and clearly. Well, of course we would do that. Okay. Um, why didn't you rudely interrupt him and yell at him and scream and go on a wild tangent and fail to answer his question? <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? So, so why are you making our kid? Why are you telling us that we should do our, this with our kids, that we should teach our kids these horrible things that will not set them up to success when you yourselves trying to get our business are doing all the things that we want to teach our kids. I want to be in that room so badly. You know, our, it doesn't need to be this way. Glenn Singleton, he uh, is the president of Pacific Educational Group. He said that the, the American education system was never designed for children of color. Never designed for children of color. And we let people like this have influence in our school districts federal level, state level, all the way down. I got two minutes. I want to tell you about a school in Chicago, NKO Charter Academy in, uh, in Chicago. Every student was accepted to college this year, 90% enrolled. They've been around since 1998. It's a K-12 charter school. 92% meet or exceed math and science standards. 92%. San Diego Unified, where I live, 12. 12%. Meet or exceed standard. This one school, 92%. You want to know why? The Atlantic talked to the head of this charter school. Where discipline 
is the most important thing. I don't want to say the most important, but essential for everything else. And they, this whole story started about a, a kindergarten classroom where the main teacher was on maternity leave and the replacement teacher stepped out of the class and still the kids were doing their work uh, in groups uh, as assigned. 33 kindergartners. You'd think it'd be bedlam. But it wasn't because these kids knew what to do. And they know what would happen if they didn't. Not in a threatening way, but they were engaged with, with school. And they asked the uh, head of the charter school, why, how? And the person said, we talk about adults being the owner of their classroom. It's not tr- the adults being the owner of the classroom. It's not true anymore. Arnie Duncan comes out and says that we need kids to be in charge of the environment. We need kids to set the culture of education in our schools. And you'll be surprised at what happens. No, we won't be surprised. We know exactly what's happening because of that. Restorative justice sounds real nice. Discipline sounds bad. But this is the progress we've asked for. This is progress. It's all about feeling good. It's all about self-esteem. It's all about catering to the bottom and bringing the top down. Discipline's not a bad word. And we need a lot more of it in our schools and in our homes and in our country. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater, I know we've talked a lot about uh, education recently, but I think it's everything, don't you? Right? Isn't this the most important thing? Educate. What, what else can happen <laughs> if, if our kids can't read and write and spell and articulate thoughts and know our history? What else could we possibly expect out of them? That's why I, I know it feels like I, we spend a disproportionate amount of time on education, but I really, truly believe it's the most important thing. I think all of the failings of our country stem from this, uh, a, a poor education system, a broken education system. Well, from our perspective, broken from some perspective, working perfectly, if you know what I mean. Uh, and I think the only way to save our country is to take the education system back. I want to share a story here uh, from NPR, actually. Dairy Rabadon. She moved here from Mexico, but uh, like really, like really South Mexico, like very Mexico, <laughs> not Tijuana. Um, real quick, when <laughs> growing up, we used to have a station wagon, and whenever my brother and I would sit in in the trunk of the station wagon, we would you know you turn the seats around or you pop the seats up, and they're facing backwards. We would always call it the way back. We're going to go sit in the way back. So Dairy is from way Mexico. 
And she came up here when she was five years old with her parents. So she's been in America since she was in kindergarten. Five years old. She's 17 now. And she's a senior at Coliseum College Prep Academy in Oakland, which is a public school. It sounds like a private school, but it's a public school. <laughs> Isn't that funny? The school, they, they, they want to make themselves sound special. It's the Coliseum College Prep Academy. It's a public school. Uh, so she's a native Spanish speaker, obviously. And this is what she said. She said, I feel like if I speak up in class, or I try to participate in class. Other students are going to be like, what is she talking about? Meaning she's scared. She's scared to talk because she can't speak fluently. She can't speak articulately. She's been here for 12 years and she still can't speak English. Well, 12 years. And it turns out in California, four out of five high school students who are learning English, Earning uh, learn, uh, English as a second language kids, four out of five have been in the school for more than six years and still aren't fluent in English. That is crazy. Right? What, what are you doing if you still haven't learned English for six years? This girl learned it for 12. They call these kids uh, in, in education lingo long term English learners. Long term. English learners. What is that? 12 years. And, and from the age of 40, to, it's not like they, she got here when she was 40, right? Well, yeah, 40 to 52, teach an old dog new tricks. No, no, no. She got here when she was five, right? When you're learning language and all the rest, five years old, five to 17, and she's still not fluent. One uh, long-term English learning teacher, uh, I hate these words, uh, she said, you have students who for years haven't been successful in school and don't really know why. Well, I know why. People just assume, oh, they're just quiet. They don't care. They're just kind of lazy. But when you actually sit them down and work with them, it's not that. They've been embarrassed. They've been silenced. No, they can't speak English. <laughs> That's the problem. So the story goes on to talk about Dayri, who's um, on her seventh try. Seventh past the states, California's high school exit exam. And she's going to go to college in the fall. She's going to go to college. Seven tries to take the high school exit. Oh, ah, there's so many questions here. First, I mean, how could she pass any of her other courses if she can't speak English? Right? How are you going to pass math and history and anything else that requires you know communicating with another person if she can't speak English? How, like, she just gets pushed along. It's crazy. English is the foundation of everything else. Also, what's the deal with the parents here? I mean, these aren't migrant farm workers who are here for a season and then going back to Mexico. Clearly, they're here to stay. They're in Oakland, which is not near the border. It's closer to the Canadian border, probably. Uh, so they're here long term. What's up? Learn English. Not for your own and not for my sake. I don't care. For your own sake. For your daughter's sake. Because she's not going to be successful as successful as her potential allows if she can't speak English. You must speak English for your own sake. This isn't for me. I don't care. I really don't. Like I don't care that when I call my cable company, I have to press one for English. I, I, whatever. And when I go to a Mexican restaurant, again, I'm here in San Diego. There's plenty of them. When I go to a Mexican restaurant, I practice my Espanol to the nice uh, uh, waiters and everything. And, and they laugh and we all have a good time. So I don't mind when people around me speak Spanish, whatever. But you need to know English for your own good. I remember I heard a story once. I think it was from one of our local assemblymen. Um, 
I think it was his grandmother came from wherever. I forget. She couldn't speak English. So she went to the library and bought tapes. And every day she would turn, put the tapes on and listen and talk back to them so she could learn English. She was like 85 years old, (laughs) but she did it not for herself because she wanted to set an example for her family. It was part of coming to America was learning English and becoming an American. And that's part of it. So it's just crazy to me that we take these kids who don't speak Spanish, throw them into these classrooms, hope they pick it up. And when they don't, we just keep pushing them through. And I've talked to teachers who are in classrooms where they have like five different languages. So it's not only, well, bilingual, let's do a little Spanish, a little bit of English. No, they got Swahili going on in there too. Like what? This is crazy. And in California, and this is going to be nationwide soon, but in California, when Hispanics make up a fifth of the California school districts and have a graduation of 65%, if they never learn English and never graduate, we're only making life worse for a very large percentage of the California population. And it's worse for them. And in the end, it's worse for us. It's worse for everyone. Enough with the PC nonsense. Teach kids English. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. Slater. Slater salutes. I have been doing the show from my mother's basement this week. Uh, You may have noticed a slight echo or maybe the sound of the water heater turning on because the water heater is about six inches from uh, my right ear. Uh, The reason I'm here is because my dad passed away. Coming up on two years ago, 4th of July. Uh, died of a stroke out of nowhere. He's never been healthier. Um, so my brother and I try to come home every once in a while and just help around the house. The house just falls apart. It's not old. It's kind of old. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's, it is super old. Actually, our house was the original school in the town we live in. Uh, but then we got it in basically, I think, I don't know, 20-something years ago. Um, and things are just falling apart all of a sudden, it seems, you know, a mirror will fall off the wall and you're like, what are you doing mayor? You've been there for 20 years. What's, what's the deal? Why are you falling off the wall now? A light bulb is constantly going out. And of course they're the light bulbs that are out of reach. You got to bring the ladder in. Um, the dryer vent got clogged. Like What? both behind the dryer and, and up on the roof. Uh, the fence fell down. The shower nozzle uh, went loose. Um, the uh, stopper in the sink isn't connected anymore. Uh, 
the screen falls out of the second story window. <laughs> Those are the chores I polished off yesterday. And after I knocked all that stuff out, my mom gave me the greatest compliment. And it was after I, I fixed the shower handle that was loose in her bathroom. She couldn't believe I did it, right? You know, like I'm, like I'm five years old and I walked her away. <laughs> like I took my first steps. She's like, oh my gosh, you did it. You fixed it. Oh my gosh. And she goes, you have your father's gene. Meaning being able to fix things. Now, I don't. I don't think, right? My dad was awesome at fixing things. It takes me forever to figure out how to do things. Right? It took me an hour to figure out where the darn screw was on that shower handle. But the compliment felt really good. You have your father's gene. Now, my mom has told me many times before, you're just like your father. But usually that's not a good thing when she, right? <laughs> usually uh, she says that when I do something not so great, right? Like, oh, you're just like your father. Right, <laughs> but this one was different. This was, ah, you have your father's gene. She told me that yesterday, and right when she said that, I thought of Turner. Five years ago, yesterday, a platoon in Jalula, Iraq, was hit with a car bomb. Two Americans were killed. Chris. Yawk and Izzy O'Brien. So when that happened, I was living in Tennessee and Izzy O'Brien lived in that small town and his family was there, grew up there, the whole thing. Uh, so when it happened, uh, a fellow Marine friend of mine decided to run 50 miles in honor of Izzy and his family. And, and we raised money for Turner. Turner was Izzy's baby boy at the time. Just born a couple months. And the run started at midnight in his hometown and, and then you know, ran 50 miles downtown and people joined in as the run went on. It started off with a few and then it gained and gained and gained. It was awesome. It turned into a really great event. And there's actually a documentary about it on our Facebook page. You can just search for the Mike Slater show if you want to watch it. But it was five years ago yesterday when Turner lost his dad. So yesterday morning, just popped on Facebook real quick. And Izzy's dad posted this on his Facebook page. He said, thinking of you today, son, really missing you. Turner asks about you all the time. Did his daddy do this? Did his daddy do that? He loves it when you tell him He's just like his daddy. I read that yesterday morning. And then my mom told me pretty much the same thing yesterday night. And I thought, I got to spend 30 years with my dad. I don't think Turner got to spend 30 days. And there's all these comments on Izzy O'Brien's memorial Facebook page. And there's two different types of comments. You either have a bunch of people talking about how much Turner looks like his dad. Or 
people sharing memories of Izzy and what a wonderful man he was. And I read those and I just think about how as, as Turner grows up, there's going to be so many times when his mom or his grandparents or family friends are going to say, you're just like your dad. And for Turner and for so many sons and daughters who have lost their dads, that is the greatest compliment that anyone could give. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.